This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I am Andreas Fabulakis. This is part two of our Best Picture winner series. Um, in our, uh, I think this is our fourth time, fourth decade doing this now. Uh, and in the first episode, we talked about uh, the the bottom five of our rankings. Uh, they were Oliver, Oliver, sorry, uh, Rocky, <laughs> Patton, The French Connection, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest coming in at sixth place. This episode, we're going to be going through uh, numbers five through one and, and really trying to nitpick uh, some of the, what I feel some of the best films ever made because this, this top five is, is absolutely glorious. And I, I like, it, it's, it's hard to even describe just how great this series of films are. Uh, can you try putting in perspective how you feel about these five films that we're about to start talking about? Um, well, in future podcast uh, episodes of this nature, we're going to definitely touch upon a great top five or even a great top ten, especially with the upcoming, uh, like the most recent decades that we've experienced. But in terms of like just pure absolute classics i mean the fact that one flew over the cuckoo's nest is where it is you know at number six and the french connection is there as well that has to tell you how strong this this top five is i mean this top five is just absolutely garbanzo beans in terms of how excellent it is yeah uh i i agree um so i went over the previous bottom five um i say let's get right into this with uh the movie that came in in number five which is the sting from 1973 uh directed by george roy hill who is uh also famous for doing butch cassidy and the sundance kid that also stars paul newman robert redford uh and this movie is about uh in chicago in september 1936 a young con man seeking revenge for his murdered partner teams up with a master of the big con to win a fortune from a criminal banker um you know i mentioned butch cassidy that's definitely the most well-known film probably in george roy hill's uh filmography and also in paul newman and robert redford's filmography too but you know this one won and this is actually the superior film which is kind of a shame that it's underseen compared to its uh counterpart yeah um when it comes to this this chunk of films the only two i hadn't seen before was oliver and um the sting and i remember you were telling me like you've got to watch it this is this is definitely up there and it, you know it was hard seeing all the other films i had to see beside it and once i watched the sting holy crap it's one of those few film instances where after the first time i watched it i was giddy like i was like oh my god what the hell did i just watch like that was just holy crap i think my hair is on fire like just everything about it was like gleefully wanting to tell the world about this film just because of how beautifully twisted it is in terms of its its structure and its plot and everything and we'll go into a little bit of just how deceptive this film really is but I'm in agreement with you. This is totally the superior film. And its legacies survived in a very weird sense, like the revival of the old-timey piano kind of cue that is used now kind of 
in reference to uh, the respective time period, but not necessarily this film that helped revive it, which is very bizarre, I would say. Yeah, um, this is this is probably the most fun Best Picture winner in the history of the Academy Awards, where right from the, the opening hand-drawn title sequence uh it's a real blast from the past but then the intro at the very first con you know it's going down and you're just like what what's happening what's going on are they actually gonna are like because you don't understand how quickly they're gonna jump into this world and right from the get-go they're jumping into this con man world and soon as it's finished. You're just like, oh my gosh, they did it. The, the Mad Men, they got away with it. I can't believe it. And it's just so ridiculous. And you just have such a smile on your face. And like from there on out, it's a very, it, you just can't stop enjoying yourself. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful because, uh, are we able to, to spoil this one? Probably not. Cause I think it's best not spoiled, right? Sure. Um, yeah. We can, we can try to get away with not spoiling as much as we have with the others. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll try our best. Um, the ending is just so spectacularly stunning because uh, there's a confusion that is perfectly wrapped up and you understand everything that's laid out because the entire movie, let's say, the characters aren't the only ones who are being deceived, which, you know, the whole film is about, like, con jobs being done, you know, like, The Sting is is a, is a the titular t- title of the film is uh, is a representative word for like the con being done and like the actual action of it happening. I think it's appropriately titled that not because of its climax, but because you're being confused as well. You're also being played for as a fool. And once you find out what's happened, you're not like upset like the other people in the film would be. You're you're pleased where it's like, holy crap, I just got taken for an idiot. That was amazing. I've never felt so stupid and so happy about it. Like it's it's great just being so lost, but yet so found once everything comes into place. And it's very difficult for a movie to do that without you wanting to lose your patience because you, you're gleefully lost with this film. Yeah, uh, I, I know. I feel like I've been referencing tons of other films, both in the last episode and now this one. Um, it's sort of like the movie The Prestige, where you think you understand the con that's going on, and then it's like a light switch gets flicked on, and you're just like, whoa, what, what's happening? What's going on? I'm disoriented. And then you realize what's really happening, and then it starts making you think back to the earlier scenes, and you're like, why didn't I catch that? Although where some films... Like, uh, I'll use a film like the movie Now You See Me, where they, they use deceptiveness to an attempt that doesn't really work as well, where by the end you're just like, you have completely contradicted your characters with this ending, this makes no sense. Whereas here, it's like you're contradicting the plot, but the, for the characters, it still makes sense for what they're doing. Yeah, with Now You See Me, like you get to the end and it's like, ha, huh, what a twist. First off, it doesn't make sense. Secondly, I don't necessarily care. But with The Sting, which is you know, also a title that references kind of like its nature on how it affects its audience, once you get to the end, it's just it's, it's magnificent. And I think part of that is because you don't know necessarily who to root for. I mean, Robert Redford's character is a little bit of a scumbag who thinks he's, he's hot stuff. And, uh, you know, like he says a lot of big talk and big words. And you as an audience, you know, dramatic irony, it's like, we know you don't have these capabilities. Why are you selling yourself this way? Stop it. You're being an idiot. And then you have Paul Newman's character, who's kind of seen as like a bigger boss of sorts, 
you know, where you don't really know what to make of him, but you know, he's frightening. And it's like, Redford, stay out of this. This guy seems like, like deep trouble. Like you just stop poking the bear. But like, you see the back and forth, the back and forth. And you start to wonder like, who's really the smartest one here? Because now I think uh, Newman's character kind of just got to where he was. He doesn't actually know what's going on. And then the next scene, Oh, actually Newman knows exactly what's going on. Okay. Well, Duh, I should have never doubted him. But you're you're always conflicted the entire film, and it's a good conflict, because once you get to the end, it's it's perfect and it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh I think I think Newman is is the real star of this, where the first introduction we have of this character, he is passed out drunk on the floor and we're expected to believe that he is this master con man when in reality he's this alcoholic loser who can't do anything for himself he can't even take care of himself and then as the as the film sort of progresses you're still sort of uneasy about what his actual abilities and talents are especially there's a there's a moment where he uh he goes to play poker on the train to sort of set up the the stinget um the bad guy who's played by robert shaw from jaws um get his attention and sort of make him fall into the trap and he shows up and you're and you're you're doubting his abilities you're wondering does robert redford's character um have the capability to successfully con him or to lure him into the trap you know we we see all this talk but we haven't actually seen it so it's very doubtful and there's a few moments where it seems like He's teetering on the edge and you're like, at any moment now, you're going to get found out. You're either going to get shot. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get thrown out. Something bad is about to happen. And it almost happened several times and you're just holding your breath. You're just like waiting for that other shoe to drop. And, and I think Red for, or sorry, Newman does a really great job balancing those, those moments. Absolutely. I mean, just the the fun of this film, the drama of this film, because believe me, there's a lot of nerve wracking moments, as you just as you just declared um, everything about it. You know, last episode, we went into Cuckoo's Nest and how, you know, it wasn't a genre bending film uh, and it got away with this kind of stuff. I would argue that the sting is and it's one of the it's a successful early form of it that uh, definitely doesn't have a pure identity of what kind of film it is just because of how many things it's it's doing at once but it does everything just so well and i know after watching this film i think it's up there with one of my all-time favorite screwy scripts you know like like charade or his girl friday where you don't know what the hell is going to happen what's going on it's just it's such a mess of screwball kind of nature but in the end it just it all makes sense, and I've got, I've got to bring this up because this was one of my all-time favorite parts of the film, and it still sticks with me. It's not a silent film, but one of my all-time favorite title cards now is just seeing, because it plays off in chapters where each chapter is prefaced with with uh, acrylic or watercolor. What is it? It's, it's, just, it's a painted title card, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the final one, the sting, like, I don't know about you when you first saw this, but when I saw that, I was like, oh, shit, here we go, here we go, what's going to happen? I don't even know, because this is, this is clearly a setup for a beautiful moment here. Yeah, and it's it's definitely well-deserved and well-paid off. Um, I, 
this is this is kind of a magical moment, the ending, and, and you don't really want to talk too much about it. But they they do an excellent job with the reveal, and it's it's shot perfectly. The tension is there, the music is there, the acting is there. It's all it's all really there, and it comes together in a nice little present for you to unwrap and enjoy for the first time. That I think for those who have not seen it, it's it's a very enjoyable and rewarding moment. Um, and it's interesting for a studio lot shot film uh almost all aspects of this production design is pretty impeccable you know i'm uh we didn't really talk about it in all of her twists but i i'm i'm really not a fan of, of studio a lot films i think this does it in a much better way they they're able to show off the the dinginess in the world of yesteryear properly and i think they do a really good job with that yeah, this is another film that uh, kind of just feels like movie studio magic, where uh, you can obviously tell it's it's on a lot or whatever, but you don't mind. Like it actually kind of enhances it because it's close corridors. Uh, as you said, the, the dinginess is brought out, um, and because it's it's a con film, it kind of feels great to be conned by the world that they're actually living in. So, uh, like to me, it perfectly it works perfectly well, and. Um, I guess, like, do you have anything else to say about this one, or? Well, I think as far as the production design goes, they sort of use it to their advantage when, you know, when you're watching a studio lot film, you know everything has been built there. Everything has, has only three walls, and there's a camera on the fourth side. Um, they sort of use that to their advantage when they are building their sting setup, the, the, the main, you know, final third of the film sort of takes place in this, uh, horse race betting saloon type thing. And they show you, they show the characters in this world building it. And I think that sort of pulls the, pulls the layer back a little bit where it almost becomes meta at that point. Yeah, because I mean, it's meta to begin with the fact that you're being played for a fool as well. I think this, this film just, does a number of things that are as you said meta so it's great yeah um that's all i have to say about that so if you want to move on i say let's do it yeah well i'm just going to finish this off by saying you know this thing is probably the biggest and most rewarding surprise out of these podcast episodes that i've had yet so um just terrific and this is one of the main reasons why i wanted to do this challenge with you because of finding beautiful films like this but um, at our number four, I can hopefully see that uh, this might have been a, a surprise film for you as well, because I don't think you've seen it before, right? No, I had not. Uh, at number four, we have uh, this. I know we've gone into like experimental films in in this uh, in this episode, but I think this is arguably the most experimental, risky movie in best picture history because it was actually x-rated when when it first came out it's probably different now but we have john schlesinger's film midnight cowboy you know starring john voight and dustin hoffman which how do i explain this one without it sounding like just how did this best picture win so we have john voight's character who's a former dishwasher who goes to new york dressed up as a cowboy to try be a male pimp, you know, uh, a gigolo of sorts. And he tries to make it. He befriends a scummy con artist named Rizzo, played by uh, Justin Hoffman, and arguably his best performance he's ever done. And it's two very unlikable characters trying to survive in a very unlikable city. Just most of Midnight Cowboy is so unlikable, but in, 
in the end, it's kind of enduring because of how how hateful and just bizarrely inconvenient this film is. Um, there, there's a hope for something to go right in a world like this, and uh, does it? What do you think? This this movie is is quite spectacular. Um, I, I went in knowing a little bit about it, but it was pretty blown away, especially with its um, off-the-wall sort of nature of of the filmmaking, you know, uh, as far as a purely uh, cinematic experience goes. uh, You've got some really interesting camera angles going on and shot selection. There are some weird flashbacks but they're also dream sequences and you can't really understand what's going on and they're they're very um it's almost it's very hard to decipher at points and then you have at times a bit of a non-linear structure as far as the editing goes um all woven together and, and like you said it's a very experimental film um the likes that we'll we'll never see in the best picture winner uh before or since then uh which i think that i i absolutely have to commend the academy for picking a movie like this because i think otherwise uh with the exception of dustin hoffman who who is quite famous um the movie would probably not have the ability to stay as relevant as it still is yeah and you know it's a beloved film now you know like the iconic uh the iconic scene where you could either argue it's um it's scripted or non-scripted when dustin hoffman's yelling i'm walking here you know aside from that like maybe it's iconic song like the, the main theme um I think this film might have just disappeared over time, but because of its its win and all of its nominations and the fact that people kind of had to go in and see it and be like, okay, why did this get a nomination? Why did this get this win? Now it's, you know, definitely seen as like a beloved American classic, you know, despite the fact that a lot of it is just so unconventional. A lot of it plays on like almost Andy Warholian kind of filmmaking, you know, with like his, uh, his, Chelsea Girls, I think they're called. Um, just like pro- stuff you would see on a projection in an underground scene, plastered on a wall that people would walk past and say, "Ah, oh, this is installation." You know, you get a lot of that in this film, which is peculiar because it's not even a safe film to begin with to get away with that. I mean, you have a lot of kind of for its time, especially kind of graphic sex scenes. You have um, you have some slurs in the film that are very derogatory now, especially homophobic wise. Um, you have a lot of plays on homoeroticism, uh, what's, what sexuality means, things that just wouldn't happen. Because look at what won not too long before or after this fucking Oliver Twist. You know, so like it's just, it's, it's very bizarre that this film won. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, Whereas, you know, we were talking about the last episode, wondering about the racism in the French connection and the place of it. I think this sort of, uh, homophobic nature and, and issues that it was dealing with in this film are very much in place. And I think, uh, 
can be studied on a completely different note and is very critical to to setting the mood and, and, and function. I don't feel that it's done in a derogatory way for a viewer. While I understand the, the purpose of it inside the movie is to be derogatory, as a viewer, I do not feel put off by hearing that sort of language and, and frankness of the discussion, uh, which I think is, is excellent. Um, you know, Dustin Hoffman, is a phenomenal actor. You said it's arguably his best performance. I think that's such a, a hard thing to say because young Dustin Hoffman is up there with some of the greatest actors of all times, you know, with, uh, with Brando, with Pacino, with De Niro, with, you know, Newman and, and actors like that. Um, turns out a stunning performance, but I think the real underrated nature of this comes from John Voight. This film, this film would be good as is with a different actor, but I think this film is great with John Voight. And John Voight portrays such utter sadness and loneliness. It just sort of oozes out of him where you can't help but pity him and feel bad for him. He's like the lost puppy that's sitting, you know, in a, in a box that was left at the side of the road and it's raining outside and it looks like he's starving to death. And you just can't help but like every moment he's on screen, you almost want to burst into tears because of, of how bad you feel for him. And that's a, that's some powerful acting. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, uh, this could have been a, a completely detestable kind of character, but when you see it with uh, John Voight, you know you see this very simple, basic-minded kind of person who didn't have it made, but you know he he was doing okay as a dishwasher. He didn't have any huge reasons to leave, other than I feel like I can make it big because of my looks and because of my my sexuality, and I think I could I could definitely take on the world, and this is my calling. And, you know, everybody doesn't even care that he leaves. They're like, oh, okay, bye. And he leaves. He's got nobody. He's got nothing. He comes as a cowboy, which is from where he's from. It's it's a sign of, of you know, being a macho man. But when he gets to New York, it's it's a sign of being, you know, like whatever derogatory terms are, are thrown towards him, uh, homosexual kind of, kind of nature. And... Uh, he feels so lost because he's like, well, I thought I had it made, but I'm going to do everything in my power to, to, you know, take on this world that I've dumped myself in. Cause you know, it can't be too bad, but you know, everything goes to shit. And, uh, he's just so basic, but he's not stupid enough to know that the world around him sucks. He's just trying his best to be optimistic and, it's hard. It's really hard to watch. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the hardest moments was uh, his only friend um, is his his little handheld radio. That's his only friend. He has to pawn it at one point because he is so broke. He literally has nothing but this radio in the clothes on his back. Um, and, and when he has to pawn it to, to afford to eat is one of the saddest, most heartbreaking moments because you know that was the only thing that was keeping him company. Luckily, in the second half of the film, you realize that by getting rid of the radio, he's able to accept uh, Rizzo as his friend, and, you know, he finds true love and compassion. And, you know, there's still debates this day uh, if 
we're supposed to believe if um, the two characters are supposed to be gay lovers or if they just have or if they're just friends with with such a deep male bond. Uh, I think it's kept purpose, purposely ambiguous, especially for its time. They're not they weren't going to as explicitly show it to you. Uh, now it seems less likely that they were lovers, although if you're looking in the lens of 1969, who knows? Yeah, especially because Rizzo's character is probably the most arguably homophobic in the film. You could argue that maybe that's that's a front because um, because he feels it's to care about his own homosexuality. But uh, the way I picture it, and maybe you do as well, is uh, he's just a product of the scum of New York. And that's why you kind of feel some sympathy, unlike Doyle, who's an authoritative figure in the French Connection. Um, Rizzo is a rat. You know, he doesn't like to be called a rat, but figuratively, he's a rat. He's a bottom feeder who lives in a dwelling. He uh, he he comes out with the rain and, and in the depths of the night. He's just the bottom feeder. So, of course, he's not going to know any better. That's the way I see it in terms of uh, the way that he acts. But, of course, like any sign of light, which is John Voight's glistening blue eyes from another part of the country, uh, he's going to accept because the world hates him and here comes this man that you know kind of hates him but at the same time is also got nothing to his name so he's they're willing to work together and they find a mutual respect Mm -hmm. uh i think the use of the flashback hallucinations give a real disorienting feel but like there's still so much that makes it confusing where i don't know what what was actually happening you cannot tell what what is an actual flashback memory and what is a hallucination of, um, of, um, Joe Buck, John Voight's character is making up or is exaggerating. And, and, you know, it's tough to say, do I wish it was more clear that you can understand what is happening? Maybe, but at the same time, I think that's part of the magic because you don't actually understand what this guy's past truly is. Yeah, um, it's hard to say because it kind of looks like he he gets into trouble for um, for you know his sexual nature and maybe it's a, it's an addiction. That's what I got from from the flashbacks. That it's a kind of addiction that he fully succumbs himself to because he again he wasn't like living the rock star lifestyle from being a dishwasher, but he was surviving. Here he's not surviving at all, even though he thinks it's his true calling. Maybe because he's again succumbing to to addiction, just like Rizzo succumbed to being. A, a greedy, thieving kind of a person, and look at where it landed up him, right? So uh, that's what I took from the flashback sequences, anyways. That it's his past haunting him because of his his sickness when it comes to how much of a sex addict that he is. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, there. There are moments of clarity in it, but uh, but overall, you're not totally sure what exactly happened to him. Yeah, and it's weird because a lot of his flashback sequences with uh, it's either his mom or his grandmother or somebody. Like even those feel kind of sexual. Like uh, you know, come here and help mom with something. You know, like it's it's kind of uncomfortably sexual in a Freudian kind of way. But that's just what all of his thoughts and dreams and his memories are. They're shrouded with his addiction. I feel so. Uh, you know, is it why he's a sexual person by nature? Um, is it just tainted because he's a sexual person by nature? We'll never really know, but, um, 
that's just who he is, and that's Joe Buck. That's what we're dealing with, and uh, you feel sorry for him because that's basically all he knows is that he's attractive and, and he can do the basic human function of engaging in sexual activity. That's about it, and that's all he feels his self worth is, and it's kind of sad, actually. Mm-hmm. And the ending is especially sad once he realizes yeah. that he has more to offer, but you know he sort of loses it. I don't want to talk too much about the ending because it's it's also a bit of a gut punch ending. Um, that I think is is very well earned. Yeah, it's an iconic ending actually because it's just it's because of its performances, and I I also don't want to spoil it. It's shockingly like a, a punch, not just to the gut, but to all sorts of parts of your body, your heart, your head, just everything at once goes into shock, thinking, "Oh my god, is this what I think it is?" And it's tough because the film doesn't really show you where it goes on from there. And you you just know that wherever it is, it's going to be the sequel that we never see. And I'm glad we never see. But it's the sequel to Midnight Cowboy that we never see. And we can only pray that it goes okay. That's about it. Headed on up to New York State. We're going to make ourselves Coming in, um, coming in, sorry, at number three, uh, we're getting to the real top here, uh, is Annie Hall, the 1977 Woody Allen classic, uh, about a neurotic New York comedian, Alvy Singer, who falls in love with the ditzy Annie Hall, played by Diane Keaton. Uh, this was both written and directed by Woody Allen, uh, easily his most famous and well-known film in the, in the pinnacle of his career, um, an interesting factoid, starting with this movie in 1977, he has made a movie every single year since then, uh, a streak that will never be able to be broken for his longevity, which is, which is fascinating. And, uh, I have a, I have an interesting quote here from, uh, from a review from a user on the, the website Letterbox that I think is, is pretty interesting. Um, Alvy Singer is one of the most horrible, selfish, destructive, rude, scared, intolerant, and broken characters ever put to screen. He's also one of the most human, which I think really sort of sums up what this movie really is about. Yeah, Eddie Hall is beautiful because it's one of the most humanistic comedies ever made. It's not because it's hyper-realistic, it's because it's, in, in a film sense, so unrealistic. He's breaking the fourth wall almost the entire movie. The narration doesn't come from his mind, you know, narrating the scene. It, it comes from him talking to you where it's like, like you're the therapist. Like, you see why I'm so screwed up. Yeah, this happened and that happened. You know, like, you get, he's talking to you the whole time. The characters on screen are also talking to you the whole time. You see, <laughs> it's not a full effect sequence, but you see him shoved in a classroom with his young self being like, why would you do that kind of thing? I, I don't know. I was scared, I guess. Oh, I just answered my own question. You know, like it's, it's a befuddled mind tripping over itself again and again and again and again and again to answer 
why did this breakup happen? And that's how the movie starts. You find out that Andy Hall and and uh, Alvy Singer break up, and it's like, okay, why did this happen? And that's what the whole film is. And at the end, you know, without spoiling anything, you get a very beautiful quote that basically sums it up that things just happen and that's how it is. You just move on and you just have to appreciate it. But the Annie Hall is a film that's not shown for the most part in chronological sequence. It's, um, it's a gathering of memories, not in order of any importance, but just in order of a befuddled mind trying to wrap his his brain around his broken heart this film is so high strung where you can't help but like be on edge as on edge as Alvi singer is throughout the whole film because every time you know they sort of get into a rhythm of a scene there's a such a quick cut that it just goes to something else and you're dropped into the middle of a different world of a different scene a different moment you don't even know at the beginning is this chronologically next in order are we jumping back are we jumping forward and you it just sort of really throws you off and and by the time you realize again what's happening they're moving on to the next moment already which is a, such a, a bold way for a movie to be made um I, you know woody allen is, is a lot of people don't like him um this is probably his uh his most crowd pleasing film that he's made, maybe something like midnight in Paris otherwise. Um, and it's so neurotic, but it just works. Everything about this film just works. A lot of the things that people will criticize Alan for is done properly in this movie. Um, you know, it starts out with just such an overactive imagination being used as a flashback. And it's just so imaginative and it, it, it's so funny that you can't help but kind of be, uh, be thrown into this, this crazy world. Um, and, and he basically perfectly recreates the inner workings of his brain. That, like no one else can by the end of it you feel like you actually know woody allen you actually know who this person is which is which is a pretty f- amazing feat to me yeah woody allen has gone on and on and on about how his favorite director is igmar bergman who's also my favorite director and it's weird to see because bergman did divulge in in you know comedy films like smiles of a summer's night but to see somebody who is primarily a comedy director slash writer like like Woody Allen, basically this is Persona, a very experimental film that breaks in on itself about even being a film that detaches itself from its audience, being done as a comedy in Annie Hall because you're aware the whole time that it's a story, that it's from his brain, you don't know how much you can trust, um, it's a film, you're, you're clearly observing that the whole time, the fourth wall's always broken, but it's funny because it's so neurotic. Instead of it being like a thinking piece, like, oh, okay, this is a film that's being a film. You know, you're laughing about it because it's like, oh, my God, this, this guy needs to calm down. Uh, let's set the story straight. And it's not going to be set straight. Now, suddenly, they're, they're an animation from like, the, from like the early 40s. Perfect. And, you know, it just goes into so many corridors. But... You know, it's hinged on just memories, and that's that's about it. And in terms of how funny they are, I think this is up there with being one of the funniest films I've personally ever seen. I mean, just so many iconic moments, like the, the black bar soap being like a really edgy kind of joke. Um, you know, you have the, the, the famous lobster scene. 
you know, just and so much about it isn't just funny, but it's also a quirkiness that's just admirable. Like the iconic scene when, you know, Alan Alan's character Singer basically says, "Hey, you know, Annie, should we kiss before we go to dinner? Because you know, we're gonna have a date." Uh, it's going to go well, and then at the end of the night, we don't know if we're going to kiss or not, and it's going to be awkward, so should we get this out of the way and appreciate the evening? And it's like, you know what? We've never seen something like that in film before, and we still haven't seen it since. We've seen a lot of people try to mimic this kind of charm, but somehow, somebody like Alan just nailed it, especially with this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sort of mentioned some of the innovative techniques, and there's another one where... Um they're not quite a real first date, but after they play tennis for the first time and they meet, uh, and they're having a conversation on Annie Hall's patio and there's subtext subtitles, <laughs> which is, is just so hilarious and funny. You know, the actual words that are being spoken and, and the, the subtext subtitles that are shown themselves aren't that funny, but it's the way it's done and the way that you can just relate to that character where, you know, you're meeting someone for the first time and in your head you're like, oh my gosh, did, did I just say the wrong thing? Ooh, I'm trying to come up, I'm trying to present myself this way. Oh, I'm getting myself too deep, but I can't backtrack now. I just have to keep going. That idea of understanding what it's like to be nervous and what it's like to uh, fall for someone and be flirty, I think is just so on the nose that it makes it even funnier because it's true. Yeah, and it's not relatable or, or like it's definitely still relatable, but when it's not being funny, it's almost hitting home on a too personal level when it does other innovative techniques. Like when you see the overlaying of Diakita's character when he, when she's in bed with, with uh, Woody Allen and you see her, walking away like as a as a as footage that's placed on top so you're seeing like a ghostly image of Diane Keenan sitting from afar and you see Woody Allen basically conclude with a punchline you're detached aren't you like like you're, you're not you're not into this are you it's like oh no of course I am I, I'm enjoying this and you see her like being bored of her mind sitting from afar looking at this desperate kind of act of sexual intercourse it's like I don't feel anything you know and it's so much of Andy Hall plays into all of our worries being confirmed that, you know, this is what everybody thinks. This is how it, uh, you know, everything's a disaster. But it also confirms it on the other person's level as well, where, you know, like you said, Daikina's character is also worried about herself. She's not, you know, Woody Allen's not the only neurotic in the film. So it's a bit of a comfort there to know that everybody's always on edge. We're all crazy in our own way, basically. Um, I think... You know, the, the scenes where, where Annie and Alvy are flirting is so playful and adorable. And I know this was sort of based around their real life relationship, where it's just one of those, those things where, uh, even the best actors can't fake it, where that, that chemistry is real. And the fact that they were able to capture that moment about themselves is just, is just so perfect and just like an indelible movie memory where you just want those crazy kids to work it out. Yeah, and it's worth noting uh, that I'm pretty sure that the whole movie, you never hear Woody Allen's character actually say, I love you to Annie Hall. You know, like the closest is like, I love you, you know. Um, but maybe like everything else in this film, that's just so nuanced and detailed that it's a subtle way of him being like, oh, my God, I never said this. I, I, I partially said it. I never said it. And I meant to. That's that's a regret. And you see so many regrets in this film and not just you know, the good of the film. And that's definitely relatable as well, where it's not like you have to hear him saying, oh my God, I never said I love you. You just notice it. And it's like, well, crap, you know, now it's too late. He came close, but it's too late now, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I, it's it's a truly remarkable film, and it seems like every single line in this movie is a one liner joke, where you're you're pretty much laughing for the the ninety minutes straight that it's on. Which coincidentally, it is the second shortest Best Picture winner of all time after Marty, another romantic comedy. Yeah, and you know it's uh, we t- we briefly talked about Alan's career. He's done film after film after film, and while not all of them have worked, you know we've got some gems like Blue Jasmine and Men in Paris. But pre- like previously, we had a lot of a lot of success with like Hannah and her sisters, Manhattan, Interiors, um, Purple Rose of Cairo. I mean, crap. Need I say more? But I think if you're wanting to go into Woody Allen's extensive filmography, this is definitely the best starting point because it's not just um, it's not just his best written, it's probably his most imaginative too. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that about sums it up for me on, on this movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, nope, that, that's, that's pretty much it. So uh, let's go from you know, a neurotic character to somebody who's perhaps a little bit too confident. Um, we're going into uh, a little bit backwards here. For our number two, we're going with a number two film. Uh, the Godfather Part Two, which is of course directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who we briefly talked about with Patton, and um, it basically stars Al Pacino as you know Michael Corleone, whose character in the first Godfather we'll briefly talk about there as well. Um, basically, supersedes his father as you know the big mob boss, you know the Great Don, and uh, it's his continuation into corruption um, that. Uh, you know, he's, he's still heading the Corleone family and where it goes from there now that he's seen as a big threat. And it's often considered one of the best sequels, if not the best sequel of all time. Um, I personally prefer this film to, to the first one, but we'll go into that a little bit. And uh, just genius, 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 genius. All right, so let's hear it because I, I thought we were on the same page before where this was your favorite film as, out of the two as well. So... Yeah, um, going in to this decade, I had told you that Godfather 2 was going to be my number one, and I was fully expecting to do that. Um, I had only seen Godfather 2 once before, um, but upon rewatching both of them, I, uh, I felt slightly differently about it. I still think this is an absolute masterpiece and by far the best sequel ever made. Um, but I think for me, where The Godfather 1 is so tightly wound and focused and it has pinpoint accuracy, I think The Godfather Part 2 uh, is a little bloated at some point. It's a little too long. There's uh, moments that aren't totally necessary. And while I love the Robert De Niro as a young Don Corleone, I think that is a absolute one of the the best performance ever um i think the the present day situation with michael corleone and the rest of his siblings uh is lacking a bit compared to the first movie um the so it's it's a weird dichotomy where the beginning the the robert de niro aspect of the film is stronger than the first movie as a whole but the second the 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 Al Pacino side of things is slightly weaker than the first movie. So overall, I think um, as a more cohesive, well-built film, the first part is better than the second part. I 
totally understand what you're saying, and I could actually see where you're coming from. I think if it was a standalone, the Pacino part of part two wouldn't suffice as a standalone film. But combined with you know the 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 precursor to the whole family's institution, with you know uh, Vito Corleone coming in from uh, coming in from Italy and trying to trying to make it over here as an immigrant. Um, Together, it's a it's a very strong sense of of the family's identity and just where it all came from, and you know Michael's stress to keep this alive, but for all the wrong reasons, you know, without you know, without using like a bit of an iron fist for good intention, he's just being an absolute dictator, and he's not following his father at all, you know. Whereas his father pulled some strings to make ends meet. He was seen as a threat, even though he wasn't really a threat. He was an honest person who, who just had to get by in a in a cutthroat society. Michael's just become evil, and I think you needed both to play at once to see the mirroring of that, like the the ascent and the descent of two different Corleones of two different generations. And I think it's I think it's beautiful. I still think it's stronger. Uh, I would not begrudge anyone who thinks that the second part is better than the first. Uh, I just, I feel like, especially the, the opening act that takes place in Las Vegas, um, with, with the Pacino character has some real pacing issues. It's, it's far too, too long and not much is really going on, especially when we know these characters so well from the first film. It just is, is about a, half hour 40 minute sequence that should that could probably be knocked down to about 15 20 minutes instead uh i don't know i i fully i'm fully indulged in all of it i would say i don't know i i could see where you're coming from though but for me there's sometimes there's good lengths and i i was totally okay with it i think you know really it sounds like i'm 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 bashing on this movie or that we're we're not in agreement but you know it's really at the point of splitting hairs between two masterpiece films of which one is ever so slightly better and, and yeah. while at the moment you, you're making it sound like godfather 2 is by far and away better i know you're probably in the same boat as me where when we get to godfather 1 you're going to be splitting hairs to to find the, the, the tiniest reason why you think part two is better than part one yeah absolutely i i don't want godfather one to go like you know throw it under the to get thrown under the bus or anything believe me the only godfather that deserves that is the third one but uh in reality i ranked it as my number two and you know, I gave both a perfect rating, which, you know, if we have to split hairs, you know, nothing is truly, truly a perfect, perfect film. It's all subjective. It's all up to you to interpret it as such. But they're both stunning films. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I totally understand that you don't think it's a vastly inferior film. You're just trying to you're trying to prove why you ranked it second. And that makes total sense to me. Mm hmm. Um... One of the things that I really appreciated is uh, the actor John Cazale, uh, who plays Fredo, got to do a lot more in this film than he did in the first one. And, and he's a real treasure. I think he's sort of uh, not very well known outside of the, you know, the Godfather films, hardcore cinephiles, because the man only did five movies, except for all five of those movies he was in, was nominated for Best Picture, which is which is such a feat. Uh, he's in uh, both Godfather films. He's actually technically in the third 
one in flashback sequences, which was also nominated for Best Picture. Uh, Dog Day Afternoon, The Conversation, and The Deer Hunter, which is his only films he was a part of and, and talk about what a what a legacy he left behind and i think when you go in wanting to see this actor you're really blown away by especially this the sort of moments he has in this second film well once we get to the tear hunter in the next episode i guess we'll go more into like his illness and how it affected him on screen and like just the atmosphere of that film especially with you know meryl streep who was like his partner at the time being in the same film like We'll get into that with the deer hunter, but absolutely, he's got sadly unintentionally one of the greatest filmographies in history because of just how top notch everything about it was. And it's sad that we lost him so soon because uh, talented actor, and I think Frito Corleone is one of the more nuanced characters in the entire story. Which you're talking about the Godfather, you know, this is a huge character study on all cylinders, you know, and outside of. Michael Corleone being one of the greatest transitions of any character in any medium. You know, Frito is beautifully nuanced because in the first film, we see him as the inferior brother who got stepped over. And in this film, it's his silly, stupid ways of trying to redeem himself and how it costs the family so much. And, you know, you, you hear him being like, you know, I'm smart. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was glossed over and I don't know why. Cause I'd never, did that you weren't even here you were in the army i was here i was there for my pops and and he just didn't care and you know you really feel sorry for him despite all of his bad actions because there's a point in our lives where we've all felt irresponsibly stepped over because of any reason beyond our control or we just feel inferior and, it, and it, you you just identify with that so much in frito's character and it's saddening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and you know, uh, I think Talia Shire in this movie, she's far better than she is in the first movie. Uh, yep. and, and I'm not really a fan of her as an actress in general, but I think the, the one moment she has where she's begging, uh, Michael to save Fredo, uh, is, is basically sort of the highlight of her career. You know, she was also in Rocky and I, I wasn't too fond of her in that movie. Um, but that mo- one moment where she's begging Michael to save her brother is, is a phenomenal scene. Yeah. There's a reason why she got nominated for this film, despite being in this film, significantly shorter, I would say. Um, I think what she was working with, uh, you know, with, with blood relations, you know, if, with Francis Ford Coppola, you know, there's, um, there's something that gets brought out of her. And the first film, which we'll go into soon, uh, she's in it more prominently, but in, in a different light. And here she's begging as like the forgotten sister, you know, you, you don't, you don't rate me at all at all anymore. Uh, but now that you have me as a little bit of a consideration, can you please do this one thing that I've asked? I've barely been in the film. I'm barely in your life anymore. And it's it's an on the knees moment that you know packs a greater punch, and just so much of the movie is how can we get through to, to Michael? And I think her her aspect of it above Diane Keaton's, above uh, John Cazale's, above uh, Robert Duvall's is the most significant, and that's why it's placed towards the end because not much can shake up Michael Corleone anymore, and that's that's part of what The Godfather is. Yeah. Um, 
there, there's so much going on. And I think, I think we should, we should probably talk a bit more about Robert De Niro, especially since he's not in the first film. Um, that sort of, the fact that it's almost entirely an Italian, uh, is a testament to just how much he's able to convey in a, in an English film, especially towards an English audience. Um, you know, he has this, he, he's almost like a blank canvas where you're able to project whatever you would like to project onto him because he, he doesn't show a ton of emotion, but when he does show the emotion, it has a, a huge impact. Yeah, it's just everything about this performance of De Niro's is very particular. And I'll go more into that uh, at the end of the podcast. Um, but just the attention to detail of everything is frightening. Like when he's disassembling the gun, it's almost too perfect. Like, okay, th- this guy's clearly done this outside of this film before. Like, just... It's a subtle embodiment. Like, he didn't have to have any screaming monologues or moments where he's, like, gripping the camera and, like, shoving his face into it and basically being like, please sympathize with me. It's a very tastefully subtle performance that speaks volumes because a lot of it's a careful a careful watch and a glare that interprets information where it's like, hmm, how can I take over this town? while I observe everything and you pick up all of that and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. The, the cat and mouse sequence of uh, Vito chasing the dawn of his neighborhood from the rooftops uh, is a great, is a great sequence. And, and the way it ends with um, Vito, you know, uh, unplugging a light bulb and hiding in the shadows and waiting for him to show up afterward is just beautiful. Yeah. And then afterwards, like the, the famous gun, like the gun, like the gun being fired through the towel and you just see like the flames going off and you just see Vito with, with the fire at the end of his fist. It's, it's so symbolic of like what just happened that, you know, he's, he's got it now. He's taken the flame of the town. He's in charge and that's that. And it ended with somebody else's life basically being plastered against the wall. And it's with the, the parade going on outside, uh, you know, like the the drumming, the the chanting, the lights being so dim and flickering, like it's just so set up so perfectly in every single way. It's a very methodical sequence. It's it's smart. It's intelligent. The camera work is fantastic. The this the background of everything that's going on that you just mentioned uh, heightens the element and, and just the the pure. Not, I don't want to say evil, but the, the, the bloodthirst that Vito has to fix his problems by killing this man is just so well done. And when he leaves and he disassembles his gun and throws it down different people's chimneys so that way it can never be found and the gun's going to get destroyed and things like that is just such a smart way that like, you you expect this guy to have been doing this all his life when in reality, you know, we're we're really seeing his ascent. You know, when he starts, he is not a killer. He's not an evil person. He's not bad. And even when he does kill someone, it's done in the best intentions because this guy is a horrible, horrible person to the community, you know, robbing people, making these little old ladies uh pay more rent than they can afford and all this sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's just a great 
prequel to like what we saw in um, in the first Godfather, which I'm guessing we're going to jump into very shortly. And you know, it sets up Marlon Brando's you know tasteful performance of a man in an evil world trying to not be evil. So, what say you? We continue this uh, this talk on Marlon Brando. I think that's a great idea. So uh, we were just talking about The Godfather Part 2. Let's talk about the first one, The Godfather Part 1, that came out in 1972, um, written and directed by Francis Ford Coppola as well. Um, and this time it is uh, showing uh, the ascent of the youngest son, Michael, and uh, not necessarily the descent, but um, how how he got to be there coming from this, this family uh, with this aging patriarch, uh, of this mob family as he's, uh, transferring control to his, uh, at the beginning, very reluctant son. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting because when people think the Godfather, they think, Oh, Marlon Brando. And they, then they do their awful impersonations, which I'm not going to touch on, but really the Godfather to me represents Michael because he's in both, the first one and the second one, and he becomes the Godfather at the end of the film. It's the title of what it means to to be this person. And uh, while it still rings true to me that that's what it rep- that's what it resembles, you know, one of the greatest archetype character um, developments in cinema history with Michael Corleone. And still, a lot of it is the the foundation laid by Vito Corleone. You know, he doesn't dabble in drugs and hookers and and weaponry. He's about like the olive oil industry. He's about, you know, good. It's just done in an evil world with, with loaded means, but he doesn't want to dive into the worst of the worst. And that's what the Godfather one's kind of about where, you know, you've got these feuding families that want to dive into drugs. They want to dive into contraband and Vito doesn't want it. That's when the feuding of the families kind of starts. And, uh, Basically, it's a study on the different evils from a business and a familial kind of standpoint and how personal it can really get and like how different reactions lead to different decisions here. Like, I think a great aspect is Sonny Corleone and his aggressive, explosive nature and how it leads to his ultimate demise because he was seen as the the successor to Vito once he passed away, but... Um, it's it's a question of how one takes a mob family in different generations and how you lead it on from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the other reasons why this film works for me more than the second one does is I think Francis Ford Coppola is more in control of everything that's happening. Um, the, the the grandioseness of the opening wedding still feels like an intimate family affair, even though there's like well over 200 people in these shots. You still understand the relationship that everyone has with everyone there uh, and what it all means, especially basking in the presence of Marlon Brando's glow uh, and aura that he exudes and then you also have like little throwaway moments like you see luca brazi practicing his speech uh outside and you you, you just kind of hear him mumbling and you, you recognize a couple of the words he's saying uh and it cuts off so it really is is a real throwaway shot that i think a lesser director wouldn't have included and then you know uh two scenes later when you see luca brazi giving this speech to the godfather you you realize the connection of this man who is nervous and uncomfortable with what he had to do because he is 
he's a brute. He's a, he's a big, ugly brute, but you know, he still has thoughts and feelings and doesn't know how to express them when it's not violent. Uh, and here he is, you see him practicing it. And I think that's such a little great moment that, that really showcases what kind of a director Coppola is being able to pay attention to such small details. And it gets enhanced with Diane Keaton's character, who plays Michael Corleone's love interest in the film, uh, well before anything truly happens between the two. You know, he's just taking his his love interest home, and uh, he's meeting, he's introducing her to the family. And, you know, she goes up to him and he says, you know, that man's talking to himself, you know, is he a little bit crazy? And it's it's interesting to note that, like, that's her biggest concern, when really she doesn't know what the hell's in front of her, but that's... First off, Luca Brasi is not insane, no. Secondly, you know, that that would have been the least of your worries. But it just shows, like, the innocence of her character. And even Michael, when he first starts off as, like, a very good, humble soldier, basically being like, no, no, he's uh, he's been good to the family. You know, that's who this person is. And it's a, it's a great introduction to both characters, despite the fact that it's a great introduction to another character, Luca Brasi. So it's interesting what... 30 seconds can do in a film like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think Coppola's slow, methodical takes really keep the tension burning at all times. It's something that he carries over to The Godfather Part 2, but it's something that you really see here and that he's he's experimenting and figuring out what works for him as a filmmaker and he's touching on some really great moments and then behind the scenes you have stuff like the sound design especially when um when michael is um is killing the the corrupt police officer in this italia uh really elevates the film from good to great you know you have uh the subway uh rattling in the background that's overpowering what's going on in michael's head and it just feels like everything is pulsing out of control and then everything slows down and quiet and you can't hear anything else except for michael's breathing and you realize that he's he's taking control of his situation and his destiny himself and it's just like that sequence of of the of the restaurant killing when michael really becomes like his family is is a real turning point for this film making it as great as it is one of my all-time favorite movie mistakes is seeing in that same sequence when michael leaves the restaurant and he bumps into the camera and you can see it shudder a little bit but it gets left in as coppola i guess felt like it was the appropriate decision to do and i feel like it was the perfect decision because it's the immediacy, they're like, oh shit, I'm here, and I just witnessed the killing, he just brushed right past me, okay, now I'm witnessing the, the bloodbath, and he's gone. And it, it really feels like you get connected there, despite the fact that it can be considered on all fronts a movie mistake, because he bumped the camera, you're not supposed to know you're you're there, witnessing it as as a cameraman, you know, but it's it's just, it's, it's beautiful, it's a beautiful way to conclude one of the most nerve-wracking scenes, I think, in film history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, one, one thing that I have against is the fight between, uh, uh, Con Italia Shire and, and Carlo is, is a, a real low point. It's very overwrought acting. Connie scenes in particular don't really add anything except to, to show case, um, Sonny's temper. Um, you know, because everything that seems like th- this couple does just results in, in Sonny James Conn's character going over the top ballistic and freaking out and just sort of, uh, usually I think it's by the second or third time you just kind of just like, all right, get this over with. It's a, it's a little, it's a little grating at times. 
I'm okay with that because the fact that it ultimately leads to what happens to Sonny, I think it's a good way of getting there. Like, if it happened too sudden, maybe it would have felt like, to me anyways, like, okay, this came out of nowhere. This isn't a significant subplot. So its repetition is grading to him as well. And to me, it's an understandable kind of stress that he would be feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... I think for me, the, the the quiet death of the Godfather really sort of subverts the idea of the big bad gangster. You know, we're we're led to believe um, what a big and powerful person he is, and in the moment when he gets shot, it's a big intense moment, and you you fear for what's going on. But then Brando's actual death in the movie is so subdued and so quiet that it just completely changes your expectations of what's going on. Where where anyone else would have completely overdone that sequence. Yeah, uh, I absolutely agree with you there. Um, What I do want to say about this film and why I might have rated it lower, uh, I feel like this is excellent at creating this world and uh, putting everything in its place. Like, this is is the family. This is how this works. Uh, This is the world that, that, you know... Uh, the author is created and I'm trying to interpret it this way. And then with, um, with the second film, I feel like it's definitely a taking advantage of this world and seeing how far you can, you can stretch its limits. Obviously the third film was the ultimate testament of how far you can go with this film without it being monotonous. Um, but it's, it's the lengths you can go. So really, if you had to pick between the two, uh, that's for me, what the difference would be. Do you want this more solid film or, this film like that exceeds it to try and go as far as it could possibly go. Do you want cohesiveness or do you want, you know, jumping the barriers? And is that something that you found maybe more with this one? Um, yeah, I guess so. It, it's so hard. I think, I think the cohesiveness is a big part of it. Um, I, I think the structure is a little more formal, which I, I which I appreciate in the conventions that, coppola is playing with um not to mention i i like the the rise of michael corleone um his his character change i think is is what really makes this uh film so excellent and 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 kind of on the moment of that um the baptism by fire at the end of the film is 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 easily one of the best contrasts ever shot and also just one thrilling sequence where you just see how far this man has changed oh my god that baptism yes let's talk about that briefly i think it's a true testament in a Hitchcockian kind of way when it comes to editing and directing a true testament to Coppola's capabilities of how he once was as a director. When you get organs being played during a baptism, but when it's paired up with men walking up the stairs with a gun, you know, a police officer hiding behind a cab waiting for people to get out of a building with, with a pistol in his hand, it turns into a funeral March and it is, so unnerving and so like earth shattering it's just holy crap is it beautiful and just a testament to some of the finest filmmaking you can ever see Mm -hmm. um 
it, yeah, I think you really summed it up. Um, the, the, both Godfather films are near perfect. You gave them both perfect ratings, and, and I, I cannot quibble with that in the slightest. Um, we're, we're really fortunate that these films exist. And I think Francis Ford Coppola's career peak in that late seventies is something that I think is unmatched by even, you know, the best directors working today and the best of all time, where he had the two Godfathers, he had the conversation, and Apocalypse Now are easily four of the greatest films ever made. And the fact that he was able to make them one after another is just, it's just mind blowing to me. Yeah. You know, say about what he does now, uh, I think he's granted to make any film, even if it's uh, Robin Williams playing a child that grows too quickly, you know, he could do whatever the hell he wants after making such a great, uh, a great quadrology of films. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that all said, I think, uh, let's get into our awards. Um, (laughs) uh, let's start with, um, I guess we'll start with, uh, the best actor. Um, you want to kick things off with who you picked? Uh, well, to keep things into, um, I guess the same topic, let's, uh, let's talk about Al Pacino a little bit for both Godfather films. You know, if I had to pick one, I'd obviously go with the second more than the first where he's more of a, a prime centered character holy crap okay what to say about one of the greatest degenerations of a character of all time just to see al pacino slowly turn from you know a quiet shy person into being a brooding quiet person and there's a big difference where somebody's an observer and where somebody is a judger who who's calculating as opposed to thinking and it's it's very scary and then you have you know, typical signature sequences where, you know, he tells Frito that he knows it was him who who uh, basically set him up to be killed. You know, the way he, he talks to Mo Green is like, you, you set you, you set my, my brother straight? Does that mean, like, you slapped him? And, like, just the way he stares people down. But my one of my all-time favorite acting scenes, and uh, it's often listed up there because uh, Michael Corleone's listed as one of the greatest performances of all time, typically is when uh, Diane Keaton, who plays his wife, basically admits that she didn't have a miscarriage, that she had an abortion so he couldn't be preceded by, or he couldn't be superseded by anybody in the family. And you see his slow realization that he goes from being a sympathetic husband to wanting to literally strangle this woman until she can't breathe anymore, and all he could succumb to is a slap to the face. It is some of the most frightening acting I've ever seen you know, even horror films included, I mean, holy crap, does he give me the chills. And I think it's difficult. Once you see that performance, to see anything after it, it's hard to see a monster played the same way. It's it's so hard because it just... It doesn't match him. It just doesn't match him. Yeah, he he's pretty phenomenal, and uh, and I think you're absolutely on point with picking him. Uh, I I'm only picking someone else to be a bit of a contrarian, and that is going to come up later as well. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> going with uh, John Voight, just because I think this is such a, a career peak, and the the sadness that he acts and portrays is just so stunning that I can't believe that something like that was actually captured. Um, and the moments that he has with Dustin Hoffman, I almost feel like it's unfair to not acknowledge Dustin Hoffman in this award as well, because the two of them work so well together uh, where 
apparently on set they would actually compete with each other and egg each other on being like i'm the better actor no i'm the better actor all right well i'm gonna outact you right now and both of them this drive that you know carries over to their characters in this film definitely shows up on screen and they both push each other so well where it's easy to say dustin hoffman is the star of this and and gives the better performance but i think looking at more of the nuances i think john voight gives a very subtle and graceful performance that cannot be overlooked yeah john voight's performance is certainly overlooked especially when it comes to this film so i'm glad that you've shed some light on it because it definitely is terrific now when it comes to um Again, performances that might be uh, that might be uh, shadowed by other performances in the film. My best actress goes to Louise Fletcher, who plays Nurse Ratchet in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is typically seen as uh, as a Nicholson film. I think uh, there's a reason why she won best best actress, and even though she kind of faded from from the line from the spotlight after this film, uh, it's her very quiet, statuous performance that. You know, we've all identified with a higher power like this, who uh, a higher authoritative figure who just doesn't want to listen to anybody else's voices of reason that is very by the book. But, you know, when people kind of attribute her as being like, uh, excuse my English, the biggest bitch in cinema history, I, I, I disagree with that because I think if you rewatch this film, you definitely see a source for why she is like this because she wants to be the best nurse that there is. Because she wants these people to to succeed, she's a slow, gradual pace when it comes to helping these people. Because she feels like you can't rush mental illness into finding a cure. You've got to help these people cope instead of just showing them what they're missing out on in life. And I think there's a definite a definite nuance to her that a lot of people miss. And I think she's certainly strong as being both menacing, but both and sympathetic as well. It is, it is a very methodical performance, and, and I'm, I'm with you for Louise Fletcher for this award. Uh, I think it's, it's quite unfortunate. I feel this decade is bereft of strong female performances. Uh, Diane Keaton and Annie Hall is the only other real consideration for this award because none of the other movies have a female lead. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's, and that's a little sad, um, and uh, unfortunate. Uh, luckily we're blessed with so many great male performances, but it's a shame that it doesn't carry over to the female side of things. Not that the females are bad, just that they were not given the opportunities to star. Uh, so it, this was kind of an easy one to pick. Louise Fletcher does give a very indelible performance where it's mostly regarded, you know, she's, she's more fa- famous for being the, one of the most evil people in cinema history, where I think that's quite an unfair characterization based on the things that you were saying. And she doesn't really, turn evil until the very end and that's more so when mcmurphy uh sort of forces her hand um to sort of deal with him in in a way of her power tripping uh to get to that point um and it's it's sort of it's definitely a shame and why the movie has a bit of a sad ending but it's 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 justifiable from her character's perspective even though it's not justifiable in the real world yeah, well, uh, I obviously agree with everything that you're saying. And uh, before we continue, don't worry. Next next chapter in this podcast, we're entering Meryl Streep territory. So we're going to get back to strong female performances being brought to the forefront of these films. So uh, we're almost there. But uh, let's 
uh, retreat again to The Godfather with uh, my best supporting actor. Let's go with um, somebody we already touched upon, Robert De Niro, as a young Vito Corleone that leaves Italy to come to New York and goes back to Italy uh, once again. And just to see this little slow transition, uh, not from somebody going from bad to good or from good to bad, but for somebody who's in power and knows how the world works and to his reaction to the world being scared of him once they just didn't even care about him at, at first. And again, his, uh, we went on about this again and again and again, but it's just such a nuanced performance. So detailed, every little small calculation is just breathtaking. And there's a reason why, yes, he was in films before this, but there's a reason why Vito Corleone was Robert De Niro's biggest explosion that got him into the forefront. You didn't even show up at the Academy Awards because I don't think he was, I don't think he thought he was going to win. But there he was, he won, and his, his life has been set ever since. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I agree. I think this performance by De Niro probably is in the top 10 greatest of all time performances. Uh, absolutely stunning and deserves all the praise it can get. Unfortunately, like I said, I'm going to be a contrarian and not pick Robert De Niro, even though, you know, in the history books, it is deserving. Uh, this one was a little bit tougher. You know, you can, you can go with, um, uh, maybe Dustin Hoffman, Midnight Cowboy, if you believe he's the supporting character, um, or Roy Scheider in The French Connection, or Carl Malden and Patton. Uh, but instead, I'm gonna go with Brad Dorif in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where I think it seems like I, I have a trend of, of picking characters who have this, uh, infinite sadness, well of sadness inside them, and, and the way Dorif, uh, sort of portrays this young, very conflicted love lost man is a real spectacle. And I think that it's one that's completely overshadowed by being in the same movie as Jack Nicholson, and Louise Fletcher, who are both rightfully uh, commended for their work. Uh, I think people forget what a incredible performance Brad Dorif has given in a very quiet performance as well. It's unfortunate because I don't think that's all they've forgotten. I think they've forgotten that Brad Dorf is just a spectacular actor and a character actor as well overall, especially because, you know, considering that we're going to revisit this this young man many years later in The Lord of the Rings as, uh, as Wormtongue, which is bizarre because it's like, what the hell, that's the same person? But you could say that about almost every Dorf performance. And it's unfortunate because like, Vincent D'Onofrio and all sorts of actors of that nature, they definitely get forgotten, you know, in the long run. Cause you know, a couple of years after this film, he did blue velvet where he's a gangster thug who's like on some sort of screwed up drugs, but it's still a completely different performance. And it's unfortunate. Cause I think Dorf is, is a lost icon. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. He, he never really got the respect he deserves in his career. I think it, it sort of came back a little bit when uh, people discovered Deadwood and he was a real highlight for that as one of the supporting characters as the doctor in the town. Um, it seems like every decade or so he sort of pops up again and gives this really interesting, fascinating performance and people sort of discover him for the first time all over again. Well, now we're going to rediscover him again with this podcast. And let's give a very brief, subtle uh, participation award to Christopher Walken and Annie Hall for being the creepiest guy on earth. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's jump into our last category, the supporting actress category. Uh, sorry to bring this up, up these films again. Uh, Talia Shear for The Second Godfather. 
whose small performance, I think, is still stunningly beautiful because it's not just a great continuation of what she was doing in the first film, but it's a, it's a strengthening moment, as, as you were saying, and you're in agreement that she's better in this film because of the more subtlety or more of the subtlety that she brings to this performance and just the sacrifice that this character is exuding in this film while still trying to be a maternal character and not just a sister to, to Michael. And I, I think it's Talia Shear's defining moment in her t- entire career. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think, you know, this sort of unfortunately goes back to the bereft of, uh, of female performances. You can maybe go Diane Keaton in, in the first Godfather. Um, outside of that, there's, there's next to no real solid, uh, female actors. Um, you know, Tyler Shire has three performances in this decade that you could pull from, none of which I'm, I'm overly crazy about, but her, her performance in The Godfather Part Two for that one scene in particular where she's begging Michael to save Fredo's life is really the only saving grace. Midnight Cowboy, they got a few Oscar nominations for the supporting characters, but it made no sense considering they're on screen for maybe two minutes. The yeah. Sting, you know, maybe you can go somewhere there, but still it, it wasn't as uh, indelible as the, the Newman Redford performances, uh, one for the cuckoo's nest. There's next to no supporting females other than McMurphy's girlfriends. So it's sort of like, um, an unfortunate award by default here. Well, again, not to worry because next episode of this nature, we're going to have some really strong female films, uh, not just Meryl Streep related, but even terms of endearment where I think that film alone is going to get quite a lot of talk, uh, come this, uh, awards, uh, award segment of next episode um but you know for now uh we've we've given our awards and i think uh for the most part they're all pretty strong yeah yeah i agree this was uh this was an excellent decade you we saw some real auteurs uh come out and, and you know grab hollywood uh by the neck and shake them up uh with some re- right some real good new film innovation in uh, in changing the conventions of what we thought uh narratively was possible. So I uh once again I'm really enjoying this series that we're doing and I can't wait to uh, to dive into the next one. Um uh hopefully it won't be too long but I'm sure we'll have a bit of a break as we have some other stuff coming up too. Yeah, and uh, just as a as a warning, uh, aside from like uh, maybe a couple of films in the next chapter, The Last Emperor included, uh, this is the last you're going to see of some really experimental filmmaking uh, in terms of uh, the Best Picture winners. So uh, we enjoyed it while it lasted. Uh, we're jumping very quickly into Oscar Bay territory with um, uh, some offenders in the next segment, but we'll get there when we get there. Where can all of our listeners find you, Andreas? You can find me on Twitter at Andreas Babs. And you can find me at DGAPA. Make sure you follow at Live in Limbo. Uh, and check out Live in Limbo's website where all of our show notes will be, uh, including our full rankings and ratings that we gave to the film that we did not mention and the list of the award winners. Um, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us on iTunes if you can. That would be a great help for us. Uh, and thank you so much for listening. Uh, this has been really enjoyable for me I, i'm sure i can speak on behalf of you as well andreas oh my goodness absolutely it's uh it's been a terrific undertaking it's always great talking about film so thank you so much for listening
this medicine that keeps her up at night is only So change upon the table, your twist of fate She hasn't aged a day, but she's aged you Whatever stops the crazy world should say She hasn't gone away, but she's left you I'll say, I swear this time will